Well, last time we looked at Paul's description of church organization in 1 Timothy, and we noticed how it is based on the rules for the Christian home that he gives in several places, including Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, as well as reaching back to the early chapters of Genesis, chapters 2 and 3, and the man-woman relationship, both before the fall and after the fall. Well, today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, in which Paul tries to correct, as he does in a lot of 1 Corinthians, inappropriate conduct by men and women in the church and especially during the worship service. So we're going to begin with the obvious question, does Paul really teach that women, women should wear veils and remain silent in church. What does he mean that this is because of the angels? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. What does that have to do with it? Now, as we have seen, scholars of the Bible have frequently used a gender lens when reading Paul's writings. In their minds, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 are prime examples of where we need a gender lens in order to understand, because clearly this is not related to us today. So if we put on the gender lens for 1 Corinthians 11, we would understand that Paul's reasoning is colored by a patriarchal culture that was oppressive to women and simply doesn't apply to us today. They argue that those who advocate a plain reading of the text are inconsistent. Since they say Paul insists that women wear veils, at least when praying and prophesying, why don't advocates of the plain reading of the text insist on women wearing veils today? And when we come to 1 Corinthians 14, the gender lens says we need to, again, move beyond Paul's patriarchal-based arguments. And they hold this passage up, too, as an example of inconsistency on the part of those who would suggest we should uh, maintain a plain reading of the text. They say, to be consistent, plain reading advocates should insist that women keep silent in church because they're subordinate to men and that if they have any questions at all about what the men in church are teaching, they should ask their husbands privately at home and then accept whatever they say. Is that really what these chapters are teaching? Are they inconsistent with each other? What can we learn from a plain reading of the text? It's not that difficult really to understand. As we'll see, 1 Corinthians 11 has been widely misunderstood because not only has it been read sometimes through a, a gender lens, it has also been often read, even more often, through a cultural lens, assuming that this is all cultural and it doesn't apply to us today. Even by some who would reject a gender lens reading. A plain reading of the text, on the other hand, allows Scripture to interpret Scripture, and it shows that the guidelines Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 11 and chapter 14 apply across cultures and times and are still relevant for us today. Now, you might wonder, how can that be? Well, just hang on for a minute, we'll see. But as we said before, to understand any text in the Bible, what do we need to see first? We need to see the the larger picture, right? The the big picture, what what Paul is doing here then in 1 Corinthians. And if we look at the larger picture, we understand Paul's purpose. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It's interesting. As in 1 Timothy, also in 1 Corinthians, he gives right up front the purpose for writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Are you with me? If so, say amen. amen. All right, good. Verse 10, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, what? All speak the same thing 
and that there be what? No divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Okay, so the purpose clearly that Paul has for writing 1 Corinthians is to unify the church. There were factions, divisions in Corinth. He goes on to detail those in this chapter. And Paul is writing not only to teach the truth, but to correct church members and leaders in the local church who were causing division. And he corrects those problems by answering their questions and giving them further instruction. Unlike, though, the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus, which were written, as they suggest, the name pastoral epistles suggest, to uh, you know, pastors who had a wide uh, range of work in lots of different areas and applied widely to many different churches, 1 Corinthians is written specifically to a local church, the church of Corinth. And um, the, many of the things that Paul addresses seem to be unique to this church. We need to keep that in mind. It was written to address these specific issues and questions. Paul answers question after question, you know, that uh, they have raised to him as we go through 1 Corinthians. Now, the first verse of chapter 11 is actually very important uh, verse in this context. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. It kind of encapsulates what Paul has said already, and it prepares for what he's about to say in chapter 11. And it enunciates a very important principle. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. I don't know how many of us would feel comfortable saying that, but Paul was exemplary in his following of Christ, and he had urged others to follow his good example. So, verse 1 shows that Christ is the head, and we as believers are to follow him and to imitate him, and then others will be able to follow our example. Of course, this is especially important for those who are leading out in worship, which is what Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 11, those who are praying and prophesying in worship. And so he's dealing especially with conduct of, of leaders in the church, those who are leading out in worship, which suggests that there is no ban on women leading out in church worship in praying and prophesying that they had a part to play. Verse 2 indicates that doctrinally, in terms of the traditions or teachings that Paul delivered to them, the, the Corinthians were basically okay. We see this also from the two epistles he wrote, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, because primarily it were the, they were the practical questions that are being raised? How do we actually put into practice these doctrines or these teachings? And that seems to be the source of most of their problems. Now, the church has a clear principle of church leadership, according to Paul. Notice what he says in verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. I like how in these three uh, spheres that he describes, he begins with Christ and he ends with Christ. And the man-woman relation is sandwiched in the middle. That's um, what is sometimes called the chiastic organization where it's a mirror. The first and the last mirror each other and the one in the middle then is the one that's really key, very important. And that, of course, is the man-woman relationship that he begins to discuss here in the first 16 verses of this chapter. Now, unfortunately, there is, as in recent years especially, some modern confusion about what Paul means when he talks about head. The word head. Now, it's a very common word, actually. Throughout the Bible, it often refers, as you might guess, to simply what is on, attached to my neck. <laughs> okay, the head of a person. Very literally. Um, but this is uh, 
you know, metaphorical use. It's a symbolic use here in this verse. And so the question is, what does it mean when it's used symbolically? And some would say, um, actually, the, the conventional, the, the reading that has been pretty standard through church history, including Adventist history, is that it refers to authority. That the head is a, uh, represents the authority of the person or the kingdom or um, the church. And then, so if we look at uh, other, others who suggest another meaning, they suggest, well, no, here in this verse, it actually means source. Source. Now, it's not easy to find passages in the Bible where head means source. There's one or two that it could mean that. But basically, if we look at a few verses, I think it'll be very clear. So, let's look at uh, a few of these verses here in 1 Corinthians 11. Normally, my wife helps me a lot. She's not here this morning, at, the, at least at the beginning, and so um, I'm skipping through some of the slides. Um, some question, as I said, whether it means head uh, as authority, but they suggest source. So let's look at a few of them. Genesis 3.15, already going back to the chapter we looked at in Genesis 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What does the enmity mean? What does it mean? So there's a conflict, opposition, right? So there's, there's a struggle going on. Conflict, anger, uh, enmity, struggle. So, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's speaking to the serpent. So um, there's, you know, one's going to be the head, the other's going to be the heel, going to be crushed. It's a struggle over authority, struggle for power. Who would be the head? Who would, who would crush the other? That's the, actually the issue here. So head means, um, in an extended sense, authority, power, and of course existence ultimately. Um, Exodus 29 verse 6, you shall put the turban on his head, speaking of the high priest, put the holy crown on the turban. So why do, does the high priest wear this special turban and crown? It represents what? The high priest's authority, okay? Symbolizes authority. Uh, Leviticus 16.21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. So the, the high priest confesses the sins on the head of the scapegoat, representing, symbolizing Satan, in order to re- represent that he, Satan, bears responsibility for sin, ultimate responsibility. Okay, so authority, responsibility. This is symbolized by the head. Deuteronomy 28, verse 13, and the Lord will make you the head and not what? The tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and are careful to observe them. So clear, isn't it, that head means first and chief, and it's used here in contrast to being last. Psalm 18, verse 43. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. Again, here, head over the nations who would serve David as king of Israel. Power, authority, responsibility. All of these verses underscore that meaning for head. Notice this passage in Matthew 21, verse 42. Of course, he's quoting from Isaiah. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the what? Chief cornerstone. Literally, head of the corner. The chief head here means chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew 21 Verse 42. 
Acts 18, verse 16. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So here, Paul speaking refers to the guilt and responsibility of rejecting the gospel and the guilt of sin and crucifying Jesus would rest on them. And uh, so it would be on their heads. Blood on their heads meaning, means being held responsible. Let's look at Ephesians 1.22. And he, that is God, has put all things under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. What does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? Now, some would say, well, it means he's the source of the church. He created the church. He founded the church. But if you look uh, at the context in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 23, it's the same meaning as we've seen all the way through the Bible. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. In what way would the husband be the source of the wife? Doesn't make sense, does it? Husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Clearly, it's the same meaning of responsibility, authority, um, that is meant here. The husband is the authority uh, in the home, as Christ is the chief authority in the church. And just in case there's any doubt, let's look at Colossians 2, verse 10. You are complete in him, speaking of Jesus, who is the head of what? All principality and power, clearly referring to him as ruling over them. He is in charge. He is the authority over all the principalities and powers. Now, I should indicate that this not only has significance for the topic that we're looking at here, whether we translate head in the sense of source or authority, but it also affects our view of prophecy. Think about the prophecy of Daniel 7 and this dreadful beast that had seven heads and ten horns. Actually, Revelation 13, seven heads, ten horns. The dread, dreadful beast had ten horns on his head. Um, but Revelation 13 points back to these beasts of Daniel uh, 7 and throughout history. Um, I, I want to go to Dan Revelation chapter 12, which is the beginning of Revelation 13. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. Of course, it goes on to say that he stood over the woman, clothed with the sun, on her head a crown of twelve stars. Again, the head there representing power and authority in, in terms of the woman and, and uh, the leadership that it refers to. But here, this dragon is opposing her, wants to devour the child as soon as it is born, referring, of course, to Jesus, who is successfully caught up to God and to his throne. The dragon, of course, uh, Revelation 12 describes as the, that old serpent, of the devil and Satan. But in this case, he's working through, as he did in the serpent in the Garden of Eden, he works through earthly creatures, earthly powers. And so in Revelation 12, this represents... Um, you know, pagan Rome, because what happened as soon as Jesus was born, who wanted to destroy him? Who was it? Herod, who was king of over Israel. He was appointed by Rome as king over, that over the territory of Israel. And so the Roman Empire in the person of Herod tried to destroy Jesus. Of course, Satan is the power working behind him. In this case, then, the seven heads representing the kingdoms, four kingdoms of, of Daniel 7 that we, we see, um, as well as uh, we could name them, uh, pagan Rome and then papal Rome 
uh, which uh, Revelation 13 introduces, and uh, the United States figures in prominently um, with a union, final union uh, with Babylon in Revelation 17. So these heads represents kingdoms that of, of the earth that is used by Satan to accomplish his purposes. And the seven heads then uh, represent kingdoms, as it is also says in Revelation 17. And seven diadems on the heads represent the power or authority that they exercise. So many crowns as on the head as a symbol of authority. That's significant for especially 1 Corinthians 11 because in 1 Corinthians 11, the issue is one of authority. It's mentioned actually in verse 10 that the woman has authority on her head. We'll talk about that in a moment. But coming back to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, let's read it again. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Since Paul is speaking of authority here when he refers to head, not just anywhere but in the church, we could paraphrase this verse the following way. The authority, the head, the authority of every believing man is Christ. The authority of the believing woman is the believing man. And the authority of Christ is God. It might seem surprising to some but actually when Paul talks about head coverings in this chapter it it's not actually a noun that refer that we could translate veil it's it's not translated veil there's another word kaluma which is used in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 where Moses puts a veil over his face that's the word for veil but that's not used anywhere in this chapter It doesn't occur. And so, when Paul talks about men and women praying and prophesying, we should not think that he's trying to distinguish them by one wearing a veil and one not wearing a veil. As if the women should wear veils and the men should not. There is no indication that the covering Paul refers to means anything like a veil or a physical covering that someone puts on their head. Rather, the word here in Greek is kalupto. Notice verses 5 and 6. Let's read it together. Verses 5 and 6. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were what? shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So what is the covering connected with here? The woman's hair. Clearly, it's connected with the woman's hair. And if we look at verses 14 and 15, notice what Paul says. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has what? Long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for what? Her hair is given to her for what? A covering. A covering. So Paul actually defines in this chapter the covering he's talking about. He's not talking about veils. He's talking about hair. Hair. Now, in verse 10, Paul says, For this reason, and we'll, we'll talk about the previous verses in a moment, but I want to make this point. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, the word symbol in my Bible, is italicized because it is not in the Greek text. Literally, it means for this reason, the woman ought to have authority on her head. 
authority on her head. In, Paul is, is referring to her hair being her authority. Or her glory, as verse 15 refers to it. Her glory. Now, what is this referring to because of the angels? What does that mean? Now, maybe you've heard some people say Paul really doesn't know what he's talking about. How can angels be connected with this at all? Well, the same word, katakalupto, for uh, covering, is used in Isaiah, the Septuagint of Isaiah, chapter 6. You remember that Isaiah was caught up in vision and he saw the throne of God and seraphim, each one had six wings, verse 2, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So Paul is referring back to the covering of the angels in the presence of God in worship. They go on to cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The angels then are demonstrating the appropriate attitude of reverence in God's presence, in, his, in, in worship, in his presence. And so they model for women the appropriate modesty that should be had in God's presence in worship. And Isaiah serves as a model for the men. You will remember that he said, Woe is me, I am an undone. I am a man of unclean lips, dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He, he also was, was extremely overcome by his own sinfulness and in God's presence humbled himself. So in different ways, humility in this passage is modeled. Isaiah by what he says and the angels by what they do in covering their feet and covering their face. So in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that men and women in worship have appropriate way of expressing modesty and humility. Angels model reverence for worship for women, and Isaiah serves as a model for the men. Now, what does Paul base this on? If we go back a few verses earlier, because verse 10 says, for this reason. Well, what are those reasons? That's very important. Notice that there is never any cultural reason that Paul gives in, these chap in this chapter for what he says. There are always biblical reasons. That's very important. But notice verses 7 to 9 that he goes back again, as we saw in 1 Timothy 2, he goes back to creation. Notice what verses 7 to 9 say. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. What chapter of Genesis is Paul referring to? Chapter? Chapter? Two. Thank you. I, I want a little more certainty there. Chapter two. Because the woman was made from the man. Taken, a rib was taken from the man and made into woman. And she was made as a helper for him and corresponding to him as we saw and when we looked at Genesis on Tuesday. So Paul lists as an important reason the way God made man and woman in the beginning. Was this before or after the fall? Before the fall, of course. And so the principle is one that applies whether we're living in a sinful condition or not, the principle still applies. And it's based actually on the way God made man in the beginning, male and female. 
And we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Notice what it says. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. This verse actually was quoted just recently um, in the statement that the General Conference voted on transgenderism this spring, in April of this year, at the spring meeting. And you can understand why it might refer to this verse. And also why transgenderism is a problem. Because it erases the distinction of gender that God made clear in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That he made them from the beginning in his image, made human beings in their, his image, male and female. Male and female. So, now I should probably add that the statement is very carefully written in case you haven't read it. It is available on the Adventist dot org website if you search on transgender you will find that statement I think very quickly um, on adventist.org um, but it also makes clear that God loves everyone so this is not a condemnation of any individual um, we all are born into a sinful world we all are born with sinful tendencies that need to be overcome and so um, whether it's a heterosexual tendency or a homosexual tendency or a transgender tendency or a bisexual tendency, LGBT, whatever the tendency might be, or heterosexual, as I mentioned, these um, need to be in accordance with God's word. It doesn't mean that we should uh, simply uh, exercise our our rest on our feelings. God's word is our standard of what is right and what is wrong. And so God, uh, through um, creation, has established a specific order that we need to pay attention to, especially in the church and especially in worship. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 begins to unpack how that can be expressed clearly. We don't know exactly the, uh, the problem in, in uh, Corinth that was trying to be corrected, but what is clear in this case is that there was an erasing of the distinctions between men and women, and Paul wants those to remain in place, in, especially in worship and those who lead out in prayer and prophesying. Let's come to verses 11 and 12 now. Um, I'll read verse 10 so we pick up the context. For this reason, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as, the woman, as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Notice that as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul balances this instruction. He has within the larger picture of church and family order and organization uh, a system of uh, mutual um, respect and submission to authority. So the authority is not to be abused. So men in the church should remember that they um, their origin was uh, from God and through, through birth, through childbirth. And so it's a reminder that this authority that God has given them is not to be abused. Paul then, uh, in verse 14, refers to nature. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So notice the, the basis for Paul's argument. Scripture, how God made man in the beginning, uh, 
in Genesis chapter 2, that we are made in his image, Genesis chapter 1, and also the way nature works because we all come through childbirth into the world. These distinctions are to be preserved and nature teaches us that. And then finally he concludes, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So there is a clear indication here that this, uh, indi- this situation in Corinth was not like the other churches, that Paul is uh, giving what is, amounts to a corrective church code. We have a more general uh, picture of what that is to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, and later chapters 5 and 6, as well as Titus chapter 1 and other places. But we have in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a corrective church code. The other churches do not have this aberration, and he's encouraging them not to be contentious, not to have different customs than the rest of the, of the churches. Now, if we now come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul lays down another corrective church code. This set of rules deals with disruptive speech in the church. And if we look at the first few verses, it becomes clear that Paul exalts the gift of prophecy above speaking in tongues because he says in verses 4 and 5, unless it's translated, the language, speaking in a language, foreign language, doesn't edify anyone. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And of course, we could say more broadly, this rule applies not just to prophetic speech, but to any speaking we might do for the Lord, including preaching and praying. It should edify the whole church, provide comfort and encouragement and edification. Most of this chapter, up to verse 26, deals with the speaking in tongues uh, circumstance that was getting out of hand and how, and we know there was rivalry in, in uh, Corinth because as we saw in chapter one, there were various factions in the church that were competing with each other. And so it seems as though they were even using spiritual gifts as a way of competing with each other and vying for authority and prominence, just the opposite of what the gifts were intended for. And so Paul lays down a series of rules for maintaining order in the worship service in exercising spiritual gifts. And while many people have focused on verses 33 to 35 that refer to women and their speaking in church and Paul telling them to be silent, it's important to recognize the larger context in this chapter that there are actually three groups that Paul addresses and tells them to keep silent because they were disrupting the worship service. And the word here for silent, to keep silent, is different than the one in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that we saw on, um, when we looked at that passage yesterday. That word, hesukia, um, means... Do you remember what that means? Hesukia? It means to be peaceful. The adjective is used in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2. To be peaceful, to be, to be in harmony. And that's the, that's the emphasis in 1 Timothy 2. That the men and women are to carry forth the service in harmony with each other. They're not to, uh, the women are not to usurp authority that has been established in the church. But this, um, this word in 1 Corinthians 14 for silence is a much stronger word, sigao, and it means really to stop talking. Stop talking. Be totally silent. And it's important to recognize that there are three groups 
that are disrupting the worship service and three groups that Paul says to stop talking, to be silent. And that these disruptions were caused by men as well as women. Now, if we would understand Paul's prohibition for all women to keep silent, what about the men? Shouldn't we be fair and say all men should keep silent also? But that would be a very quiet worship service if we all went in and we just sat there in silence. I'm not sure too many of us would stay very long. So let's look at these three groups very quickly. In verse 28, the disruption is speaking in a tongue or a foreign language without an interpreter who can explain what it means. And Paul gives a very clear explanation or rule for maintaining order in the worship service. He says in verse 27, notice, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Okay, so only two or three are to speak, and each is to speak in turn. They're not to speak all at once. And there must be interpretation so that people can understand the message. That's disruption number one, group number one. Group number two, prophets were not waiting until the first prophet was finished speaking. They would start already and even interrupt the previous speaker. And Paul's rule, given in verse 31, says, For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So again, one by one, let each in turn speak. This is not so difficult to understand. So now let's come to the controversial part in verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches. But that, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. The word there, asking questions, ep erotatasan, means to can, you know, keep asking questions. Persist, be persistent in asking and persistent in speaking. Uh, both of these, these words used here. Uh, on asking and speaking refer to continuing to do so. And so it seems that the women were behaving in a way similar to the men who were speaking out of turn or interrupting each other and not waiting until the other was finished before they would begin or they were speaking in a way that could not be understood. Of course, if people are speaking all at once, that makes it uh, difficult to understand. And so Paul's rule is that they should be women who uh, are causing disruptions. Should says, let them be submissive by asking their own husbands at home. By asking their own husbands at home. Now this is, um, this is clearly uh, something that refers to all three groups, these, these rules. He's not singling out any individual or any class, those, in fact, who are causing disruptions in the worship service. He's not contradicting what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, because there he said that the women uh, should be covered who pray and prophesy. So he's not forbidding all speaking in church or in the worship setting. And this rule in 1 Corinthians 14 should be understood as supplementing that more comprehensive instruction that precedes it. Notice that uh, before we go much further here, that in there are several other principles in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul brings out that are helpful um, for us to keep in mind. Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So if someone is prophesying, if someone is is teaching 
and speaking God's word, it will be in harmony with what the prophets have said already in Scripture. They will be in harmony. God does not contradict himself. He never changes. So true prophets will be in harmony with the word of God spoken through earlier prophets. And if not, they're what? False prophets. Note what Paul adds in verse 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, or have a spiritual gift, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are what? What? The commandments of of Paul? Of the Lord. That what Paul writes here are the commandments of the Lord. It's not just his own instruction. It's not just the word of Paul. But the commandments of the Lord. Now, are these instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 still the commandments of the Lord? Something to think about. Sometimes we limit the commandments of God to the Ten Commandments. And clearly they're more important because they were put inside the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. But Paul's instructions here are also called commandments of the Lord. And it's because it's based on what God says in Genesis. And that's why, verse 40, Paul underscores the main overarching principle of both these chapters. Let all things be done decently and in order. I want to conclude with a statement of, and there are many such statements from Adventist pioneers, because Adventists, because of Ellen White, who often spoke and, and preached in church, they were accused of violating Scripture. In fact, these texts that we've looked at in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that women should be silent. So how is it that we have women speaking in our church and even preaching from the pulpit? How can that be? And this was a question that was continually raised by uh, opponents of Seventh-day Adventists. So... Many articles are published, and this is just a representative one, and there's, I'm only going to list, uh, quote, a very small part of the article. It was published in the Review and Herald of uh, 1881, actually June 14th, 1881, page 372, carrying over to 373. Notice what N.J. Bowers wrote about this passage. Paul is correcting wrongs and irregularities that existed in the Corinthian church. There were times in which it was out of order for the men even to speak. 1 Corinthians 14, 27, and 28. Those are the verses we read already. Then there were occasions on which they were to keep silence in the church, on which the man was to speak to himself and to God. This was, of course, not general. So in the case of the sisters, both prohibitions had a special application only. Again, the main point Paul makes is let everything be done decently in order. He has to say that because they were not being done in an orderly way. There wasn't order as there should have been in the Corinthian worship service. And so this is a corrective church uh, code of, of rules for maintaining order. So, okay, you might be thinking, I, I get what this chapter, these chapters are talking about. Um, but maybe we're not asking the right question. Sometimes we know clearly what the Bible says, but if you think back on the very first presentation on Monday, there are some passages that we just don't like. We just don't like. As yesterday, my, my wife mentioned about Ephesians 5. You know, these were, these, these were parts of Scripture that took time 
for us to work out what they meant for us and how to, not, not what they meant so much, but how we should, how we should obey them. There was no question in our mind that they're true. The question is, how do we actually put it into practice? It's like one person said to me when I was pastoring in Northern California, no, it's all true. I, there's not anything I can point to and say, no, no, that's, that's wrong in Scripture or in the spirit of prophecy. But it's not always easy to do it. It's not always easy to do it. The main, the main question, I suppose, is, am I willing to obey what God says? Am I willing? That's all God needs. He is our willingness. Nothing more than that. We show that we believe God's word as we surrender our will to his in obedience. We also show others that we believe God's word as we surrender our will to his in obedience. So I would just like to conclude with two questions for us to think about. Question number one, am I willing, individually willing, to obey what God says? And number two, are we willing as a church to obey what God says? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.